It's Ag Arts from Horse and Buggy Land, and I'm your host, Mary Swander. Today, we're in the field back at Red Fern Farm with Kathy Dice and Tom Wall. I've been matched with them through SILT, Sustainable Iowa Land Trust, and the Writing the Land Project. My assignment was to write three poems about Red Fern Farm, which will later be anthologized. Stay tuned for the details later in the season. For now, relax and enjoy poetry and farming, a fine ag arts pairing. Corn is not the answer. Then what is? Chestnuts planted into the rich soil at Red Fern Farm, just two miles from where the Mississippi River flows, where the Paleo people lived 10,000 years ago, mammoth hunters whose points you've held in your hands. Then the archaic people struggled with droughts and dry prairie, giving way to the mound builders and the Oneotos, living in pine forests along rivers and streams, the last prehistoric culture giving way to the Iowa, Meskwaki, Sac and Fox, Ho-Chunk, Blackhawk, and Sioux, all who broke very little ground, who kept no livestock, who kept the earth in place, in a place where the sky was black with migrating pelicans, ducks, and geese, diving down to fish in the wetlands, with the turtles, frogs, and snakes looking on. It's for the bird's sake, for the sake of all who've preserved this land, for the sake of the native people, the native prairie, the sake of all the settlers and sons and daughters of the homesteaders trying to claim a home, trying to make a buck on free land, land parceled out to anyone who could stick it out five years, for the sake of the sons and daughters of the sons and daughters who stayed for generations, pushed to expand, to do as they were told with tillage, chemicals, and yields, trying to get big before they had to get out. But you wouldn't be told. And the chestnuts began to grow. Chestnut tree varieties. What 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 goes on here? Well, uh, Tom does a lot of breeding. He's constantly trying to get um, more reliable genetics, so things that are resistant to late freezes, to late frost, things that can handle a colder climate. He's trying to bring in a little bit of American chestnut genetics to our chestnuts, for example, from Badger Set Research Farm so that we can have some chestnuts that can be grown reliably, with, have, reliably have a crop in northern Iowa, southern Minnesota. And that's a challenge with the Chinese chestnut genetics because they're used to a warmer environment, but they are very reliable. They have a tasty nut that stores well, and they're resistant to the chestnut blight that the American chestnuts are not resistant to. We're considered the banana belt of Iowa. Right. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. 
Yep. We, yeah, bananas, pawpaws, have always been called like the poor man's banana or the prairie banana, the Iowa banana, the Indiana banana. We liked the Quaker expression because we shared some with our, our friends um, meeting and the Quakers were saying, oh, this is like a Midwest mango because it's mango flavor, but it's understated. <laughs> so we were like, yeah, Midwest mango. Love it. Yeah. But, yeah, see? <laughs> And what's their range? Um, Pawpaws will go reliably in Iowa to Highway 30 or a very solid Zone 5. And then this is just the beginning of our leaderboard. I mean, can't hardly see anything now. But we'll track and put up here the names of the groups who pick the most for the season. So right now, um, Lee Trong is the leader because he came and he picked 32 pounds of pawpaw all of them unripe, but he, we don't understand, but apparently his family, who's originally from Vietnam, they really like the papa, the, the unripe flavor, or when it sits around for a while, or maybe he's shipping it and he needs it unripe. I don't know, but we were like, these are not ripe. These are not, he's like, this is good, it's good, it's good, we're fine. So it's like, and he's one of our biggest customers. Do they ripen off the tree? If you get them a little bit ripe to start, they will ripen off the tree. And in fact, if we come out here, it's nice that now we've got pawpaw trees close by that actually have fruit. Not the one that's closest. You can see this lovely drooping guy who's shading. That one doesn't have fruit, but up that way. In fact, um, do you want to see pawpaw with fruit? Oh, yeah. Okay, well, let's go up this way a bit. The Pawpaw, Michigan has got to have some pop, and you can see the chestnut burrs on the chestnut trees. Tom told me where to look. And these are the Pawpaw sprouts coming up from the root. Thank you. So this is what the fruit looks like. That one's hard. Can you describe to me what it looks like? I think of them as like a big potato shape. It's got a smooth skin that's green, kind of blotchy with a little bit of a black spreckle like you'll see on an apple that's growing out in an orchard. But that green skin stays green even as it ripens. And so that's one of the tricky parts of trying to figure out, is this pawpaw right? Because the color doesn't really change. So you gotta just gently squeeze it like you would a mango. And if you feel it give under fingertip pressure, you know you got a ripening pawpaw. If you let go and you can feel the flesh spring back, it's not quite finished. But if you can feel that you left a little bit indentations on the fruit, that is a very ripe pawpaw. And you can go ahead and harvest it and it'll be tree ripe and full of flavor. Uh, like the mango, pineapple, lots of banana flavor. The texture is kind of custard-like. We call it like room temperature ice cream. Very, very rich. I mean, two to three pawpaws is about all a person can eat a day because it's almost as many calories as you want. Lewis and Clark, when they hit the Missouri area, were living off of pawpaws as they came down. Ooh, look at the size of this guy. So that's a nice, it's a probably about three quarters of or, or one pound fruit. That's another thing, these pawpaws are pretty heavy. And I'm squeezing, I can feel it give. Oh, 
Let's go down and look at that pawpaw tree. <laughs> We've got... How did Lewis and Clark know that they were edible? I mean, they're not, they're a North American fruit, right? They are native to North America. Well, the people um, in the Missouri area would have learned a lot from the Native Americans oh, in the yeah. area. But Lewis oh, well. and Clark grew up in areas where there would have been pawpaws. Okay. So this is getting a slight color change. It's a little bit yellowish tinge to the green pawpaw. But these guys are actually pretty darn hard. This is a cluster of one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, seven fruit. It's really large size. They're so photogenic, aren't they? <laughs> <laughs> oh, that is just heavy, heavy with fruit. So do they... This is the happy pawpaw dance. <laughs> and we'll tell our customers, because a lot of fruit will be out of reach and we don't allow anyone to climb trees, um, just gently reach up and if anything falls down, it's probably ripe. They can go ahead and test it. And if they find fruit on the ground, it's probably fine. They can look at it. If they like it, they can take it home, but they should look for bite marks because sometimes we have possums and raccoons who climb up in the trees. They'll pick a pawpaw. They'll carry it around in their mouth a little while. You can find the little canine indentations, tooth marks, like, oh, you, you animals. But I was about to say was if you give the tree a light mm -hmm. shake, the ripe fruit will fall and unripe fruit will stay on. So is there any symbiotic relationship between the pawpaws and the chestnuts, like do they they help each other or is it just... We don't like, know of any, but there, there could very easily be, we just uh -huh. don't know. It's just that, that the pawpaws are the understory and yeah. the chestnuts are the overstory. Yeah, they, they don't hurt each other right. at all. Okay, good. And they like the same kind of site, like, like, to, like to grow in the same kind of place. And the pawpaws don't mind growing underneath chestnuts. Okay, so what's the ideal site for them? What do they like the best? Almost all trees like uh, deep, fertile, moist, well-drained soil. And almost everything will do better on that kind of site than anywhere else. But, but soils that fit that, that, that description are exceedingly rare all over the world and even uh, pretty uncommon in, in the U.S. But that's what we've got right here we're standing on. What, the soil type? The deep, uh, fertile, moist, well-drained soil with a good balance of clay, sand, and silt particles. Is the other part, like, around Siberia? No, there's pockets of good soil oh, okay. around the world, but it's... Most of the Earth's land surface is covered with either solid rock or a thin layer of poor soil on over solid rock. And... Most people in the world couldn't believe the soil we're standing on. Yeah. <clears throat> it's just crazy rare. Yeah, that's one reason worldwide. we have so much of it. So we just take it for granted. We just assume it's like this all over other places. And it's like, no, no, this is actually exceedingly rare. But if you grow up around it, you, you don't realize that. Well, when we're very close to the Mississippi River, so you get that effect too, right? I mean, does that help with the... More... We're probably a little bit too far to get uh, climatological <coughs> uh, microclimate effect from the Mississippi. We're two and three quarter miles away, and we're also out to the west of the Mississippi, so most of the uh, 
the climate modification would be on the east bank. I never thought about maybe Lake Odessa, lake, uh, the Odessa complex, which is a big wetland area, Baxlu, would have any kind of climate effect on the people nearby. I, I wanted to point out this. Look at that. That's one year's growth from the root shoot. That's amazing. But even, even in Iowa, which is covered with And so did the heartnets, hazelnuts, honey and aronia berries, Asian pears, cornelian cherries, and hardy kiwi vining up the sides of trees. And so did the persimmons, sweet, mild, rich, and picked in the early fall. The days still warm, the fruit still hard, ripening off branches, tasting like apricot, maybe even better, smelling like sweetened dough with a dash of cinnamon. Too soft to slice, simply cut in half. The flesh scooped out for a smoothie, a compote, a dried treat, a pudding or upside-down cake with the pulp mixed with flour, baking soda, nutmeg, cloves, chopped pecans, and lemon zest. What? No delicious apples? No Bartlett pears? No, nothing to be pruned. No vegetables? No broccoli, tomatoes, sweet corn? No, nothing to be dug up, turned over. Only asparagus or horseradish that comes up all on its own from year to year. And for the future, no annual crops. An easement in place, protecting the farm from the bulldozer, lasping back into row craps. The speculator with a housing development or a theme park with flashing neon signs and rides and slides shooting screaming teens into an artificial lake. Only perennials drowning in trees, bushes, shrubs that will grow well in this changing climate zone. Who knows what the future will bring? 30 years from now, the persimmon may find the weather too tough. Now, that's pretty extreme, the land trust had said. Yes, yes, that's extreme, you said. We are extremists. All right, should we get them over to the Shire now then? It's nice. It's, I just love it when we get to be in a shady area from shade of trees that we planted. All right, oh, and you might want to, oh, this is one of our trees. So just this summer, a couple weeks ago, we started getting these labels on the tree. And it, this tree's gotten it because it, you can see these three dots here. That's showing that Tom's evaluated it at least three years and it's had a good crop. So this guy was good enough, got a name. So that's a mother tree that we'll be collecting seed nuts from selling them to other people, growing the trees in our nursery too. And this is our laying flock of chickens. These guys are new. 
We lost our last flock to um, a raccoon attack about two years ago. Hey, ladies! And there, this coop is one we bought from our neighbors, moved out here, and I've been wanting to have them in a mobile coop, and I started building a um, Justin Rhodes Chickasaw-type mobile coop that you can move around, and my goal is it's going to move with the sheep. And so we got one electric nut for the sheep and the chickens, but it has been a slow process for me to get that coop finished off. But these ladies will be getting away from this rundown area pretty soon, which is nice. But over that way, you can see they have their paddock out there, which Tom has been wanting to get moved into a new paddock. So you can see it's all these big chestnut trees, it, all the big trees are chestnuts. And we don't really have the diversity over here that we had in the other grove. Though Tom has been interplanting pawpaws, currants, there's I, gooseberry, thank you. And, oh, we got ramps started too. But it, this is kind of the deeper shaded area. Yep. Because the chestnuts wanna produce their nuts at the growing tips where there's sun. So if they get into a solid deep shade, they won't be producing nuts on those. So we need to keep a bit of an open canopy going. And you can see that's not that big of an opening right above where the stump is. The guys around him are already filling it in, even though just to the north of this stump, there's another dead tree. And again, the canopy's already starting to fill in because the trees around are like, oh! Sunshine! I'm gonna get me some of that. All right, cool. All right, we're just gonna come a little bit. Oh man, look at you look that way. It looks kind of neat. And now, as we look back this way, it's like, yeah, that's kind of looking cool. And this is, I love that PFI called our our place one of the richest food forests in Iowa. And it's because, as our intern said, you guys were doing food forests back before it was cool. And, and we did start a long time ago. Before the term even existed, that's right. When did you start this? We, Tom started planting chestnut trees. And I say Tom because he was the motivating person behind it. I was the reluctant, what the heck, person that was supporting. And I, I called myself the enabler. But um, I would say the first planting, which was out in the Crider Creek units, up on the hilltops, 92. All right, that sounds about right. That would have been just like four years after we got the property. Six years. Yeah. Yeah, just before our kids were born, too, and before we built the house. <laughs> so many things going on. We, we were both working full-time, too. But we went and we tried planting chestnut trees, black walnuts, Asian pears, persimmons, out Papa. Papa, on the flat hilltops where um, the cattle that had been grazed repeatedly in this woods had killed off almost all the native trees and just left behind honey locust and multiflora rose because those were unpleasant to eat. So we had gone through and killed the honey locusts and the multiflora rose, so we had these big sunny spots on the flat hilltops. And Tom had been learning about chestnuts and pawpaws and, oh yeah, tree crops from J. Russell Smith's book. And so he's like, let's try planting some of this. We could be an example of a different kind of agriculture where it's gonna be permanent, 
It's going to be a polyculture. We can have diversity. We can cut down on pests. We can cut down on the need for insecticides. We won't need chemical fertilizers. We won't even need big heavy equipment. This could be really good. And I was like, okay, <laughs> we could try that. And so he went out and he planted. We even got some grants to help with, because it was a pretty cool idea. So we planted out there on those hilltops. And this was before five-foot-tall tree shelters were available. So we had two-foot-tall shelters. We had four-foot-tall ones. Some of the trees would grow out the top of those shelters, and the deer would come along and go, Oh, thank you. Yum. Just eat them up. And we were having trouble with weed control because we couldn't get our mowers into those groves because, as Tom described, it was G-slopes going down and then back up. And we had two creeks we often had to cross and he would try building bridges, and the creeks would rise and just wipe those out, I think, two or three times in one year. So our first, from all 33 acres, I think our, our total harvest could have fit in an ice cream bucket. And the year after that, it was probably still an ice cream bucket. It was slow going. But rapidly, it went to ice uh, five-gallon buckets. And fortunately, about that time, we discovered nut wizards, which really speeded up the process of harvesting the chestnuts. But that was also the beginning of an eight-year drought, oh, which slowed was, everything yeah. down. <clears throat> I can remember coming out here and mowing around little tiny trees and shelters and thinking, I don't see anything in that shelter. I think I'm not mowing around anything. Why can't I just mow? I was, you know, I'm, I get uptight anyway. As Tom will most attest. of the growth on these trees has occurred since 2009. Yeah, and it was hot and sunny in the first eight years because there was no shade canopy. The grass was growing well because it was getting a lot of sun. It took a lot of mowing to try and get rid of that brome and alfalfa. And it was just hard. And it was like, this is supposed to work, but it's not working. And then it did start to rain, and the trees started to grow, and they started to canopy over. It started to be shady. The grass started not growing as fast. We didn't have to mow as much. And there were producing nuts and fruits, and then suddenly it was like, boom, 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 we're there. Oh, my gosh. It was, a, it was yeah. quite like a transformation. I can tell you exactly what year <laughs> What year we, was that? We were actually burning through our savings after you quit your job. Yeah. Yeah. in 2014 and it was 2016 when all of a sudden we'd been making not enough to to live on and 2016 we made enough to recharge our savings account and have a bunch left over that we needed to <laughs> spend on something <clears throat> to keep from going into a higher tax bracket so it was 20 16, the, the things really became profitable here? Yeah. I think yeah. they had been edging up, but yeah. And it, was, and it was a combination of both nursery sales, took a big jump, but also the uh, crop, ch chestnut crop, took a big jump. Was that when the Bosnians discovered you? Oh, no, they no, were before that. Bos Bosnians discovered us in like 2004, 5, 6, oh. somewhere around there. Because Tom had been also working as the chestnut brokerage manager. And to encourage people to plant chestnuts, he would buy chestnuts that other growers had raised. Bring, they would bring their chestnuts to the farm. Tom would run it through a sorter to get the different sizes. Then we would bag them up, and then we would sell those. And that was very time-consuming. 
And in the beginning, we didn't have a good market for the smalls and the medium-sized chestnuts. We, he started developing another side business to process those size nuts into crumbles, dried crumbles, and chestnut flour. And kernels. And that was just... Whole, whole kernels, it was, it was just starting to take off, and that was when I developed the chest, various recipes. Um, it was just starting to take off when Bosnians discovered that we had medium-sized chestnuts. Oh, my God. They were like, boom, we want those. We want all of those. Yes, okay, we'll take your small stew. What are you going to do with the, are you going to market the freeze-dried papa pulp? Um, ultimately, yes, we're hoping that somebody will. We'd like, we'd like to just grow the pawpaws and have somebody else uh, uh, pulp them and then freeze-dry the pulp and, and market the pulp. But Part of the problem is you have to have a commercial licensed kitchen to even be able to process uh, papa pulp and sell it. And that even includes a licensed registered freezer system. So we have, we're working with Levi Lyle, who I think has um, a licensed kitchen. And he's interested, he may end up processing the pop-up pulp, freezing it, and then processing it in the freeze dryer as well. Because let me tell you, freeze-dried pop-up is amazing stuff. If you dry pop in the regular dehydrator... It oxidizes. It almost it becomes in inedible. Yeah, you you eat it and you throw up. I mean, it, it has toxins built up in it. But freeze drying, it comes out crunchy. It tastes like fresh fruit. We got to try some that a brewer brought us, and it it was amazing. So we immediately realized freeze drying. That is the way to put up a lot of pop pulp. So. So as we walk, you'll see we've got um, plums to the side, persimmons, hazels. We're walking through our experimental area, which is in between the parking lot and the old South Grove. So the experimental area was where Tom got to plant whatever he felt like. And there's a lot of interesting things growing there. And our son gets a wondrous job of mowing lots and lots of stuff. So he's really happy we have sheep now because the sheep take care of most of the mowing through the year for him. And they also fertilize for us as well. So we're gonna go a little bit this way. And my task, um, because Tom's been ill a bit this fall, is I'm learning all the things that he normally does. And one of them is checking the first chestnut trees that have fruit, um, that ripen the nuts first. So, I actually used my, ah, I found it. <laughs> so, if you look down, you'll notice there is, um, the grass has almost no dead vegetation because it's been sucked up. And there we go, a chestnut that's on the ground. So, oh, and there's another one. We'll leave these for you to see with the photo op. This is just the beginning of the chestnut drop. Right there, oh, wow. and no, no, no. there, yeah, oh, and this is, God. Oh, and there's a bunch more over here with a few birds down, too. Oh, and over here. So we'll pick these up so you can take some photos of it doing it. Then we're going to put them back down for our customers to come and get at 2 o'clock. Oh. This is fun as hunting for morels, I swear. And look, that's one that's actually been chewed on. Oh, no. Actually, I think the mower got this. It's a straight cut. <laughs> All right, so these trees 
which are smaller, and you can see a lot of dead tops because of fire blight. These are our Asian pears. Yeah, it's like a golden apple when you look at some of that fruit. Apples are really pretty. And some of these will be ripe. Yay! And the, the quality of the fruit looks better this year. And I'm real, ah, there we go. There's some on the ground, and that's gonna be for the sheep. So one of the things we have our um, interns and children, young adults do, is they come out and they pick up the Asian pears that have fallen to the ground. Ooh, there we go. And our uh, sheep get to enjoy a lot of the fallen fruit. So I'm pulling out my knife again. <laughs> yeah, this is a Korean giant that shouldn't be right for the uh, This one here? Yep. Oh, that's a shame. So I... Now, can you dehydrate these? Oh. Yeah, this variety is particularly mm. good for dried pear. Huh. It's actually pretty good. Yeah, not ripe. Hmm. Right? But okay. crunchy. This one kind of has a butterscotch flavor when it's ripe. Mm -hmm. Oh, we missed these guys. So we found out last fall that we hadn't realized oyster mushrooms were good to eat. And we discovered they really liked our dead heartnut trees. So here's some that we missed that we could have enjoyed the last week or so. But man, we were eating a lot of mushrooms last fall. Papas too are extremists, extreme in their beauty, the maroon flowers drooping down, producing a massive amount of fruit on a single stem, the green bounty quietly camouflaged, understated, hidden beneath its leaves, the Quakers of the farm, like you, their owners, mild in manner, mild in taste, custardy like a banana crossed with mango. Unlike apples, peaches, and pears, the pawpaws never cross the ocean. A native tree familiar to the Meskwaki, the Sac, and Fox, the Ho-Chunk, and Sioux. A lucky find, a food source for the settlers. But good for only two days. Pawpaws never hit the road, never shipped across the country. No one ever picked them and put them in their pocket for long. So the apples, peaches, pears pushed them aside, and the pawpaws went way down yonder. Yet here on Redfern Farm, next to the chestnuts and persimmons, the pawpaws bear witness, greet Bosnians who cross the ocean, fleeing war, recreating their old world custom of picking nuts in the fall. The Bosnians pull into the U-Pick farm in their vans with buckets and baskets. Their vehicles fill with just a little of what they left behind. The nut wizard whirls across the ground beneath our feet in this ever-shifting place, tree roots sinking in, communicating through an intricate web of fungi 
growing around and inside them, telling the dirt to stay put, stopping it from washing downriver, from carrying harm, finding no one, nothing, displaced. brings our episode to a close for today. We were produced by Rick Brewer of Bruhaha Audio Productions, and we worked in conjunction with Silt and the Writing the Land Project. We had support from the Werner Ellithorpe Fund at the Oregon Community Foundation and the Calio Levine Fund, which also funds our Farm to Artist residencies. We welcome your support. Simply go to our website agarts.org a-g-a-r-t-s dot o-r-g and hit that red donate button thank you for your help and see you next time